Good morning, Calvary. How are you this morning? Yeah, somebody started to clap a minute ago when the worship team was finishing, and I thought, you know what? I want to take a minute and just say thank you to those guys. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, yeah, you can clap. They're not here, I think. A few weeks ago, we said uh, goodbye to one of our worship leaders, Andre, and, uh, and her husband, Niall. They moved to Houston, and this team has kind of been an interim team helping us out, and Eli has done a great job, and Joshua Hahn is uh, the guy leading this morning, and, uh, and these guys have all are stepping up, just trying to help out and, and, uh, and serve the best that God's provided, them for, uh, provided for them, so we're so thankful for them, and when you see them, tell them thank you, because they're doing it really out of the goodness of their heart. And, uh, and they've been doing such a great job. And so um, it's really, really a great thing to see the body of Christ jump in and serve where there's need. And uh, that's one of the things we're going to talk about this morning. We're talking about the gospel and how it changes the church. And it might seem like an odd thing because the gospel is the foundation of the church. The gospel is what made the church come around to begin with. The gospel is everything. If you know Calvary, you know we talk about these five Gs. Gather, grow, and go are the three kind of central ones. We talk about them a lot. But the foundation is the gospel and the other piece is guide. The idea that we need to be training and guiding and equipping leaders to lead the church. But this, this idea that the gospel is the foundation is kind of throughout all evangelical Christianity, everything that Baptists care about, everything that Calvary cares about starts and ends with this gospel, this good news that Jesus came near to us and that the kingdom of God is drawing near to you and to people throughout the world and saying, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. This good news that Jesus brought impacted the lives of his disciples so much that they, were, they exploded with the, the presence of God on the, on the scene in Jerusalem and the church was launched in Acts chapter 2. And uh, today we're going to look at a verse out uh, of Acts chapter 11. We're going to see how God used a different church to impact the whole church. And so go with me to Acts chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 25. It's kind of an obscure verse. It's one that doesn't get a lot of attention. But it says this, verse 25 says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now you may not, <clears throat> you say Jerusalem, you say Antioch, it may not mean a lot to you, but I just want to give you a little difference here. So Jerusalem is, is kind of the headquarter of Judaism, right? It's, it's where the temple of God stood. It's where Jesus' ministry uh, started and kind of climaxed there. And so Jesus spent a lot of his ministry in the northern part of Israel, but he died in Jerusalem. The disciples were in Jerusalem. Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit arrived and the church launched, that all happened in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem kind of becomes what you might consider is like the headquarters of the Christian faith, right? It's, it's the center of everything good and important. It's where the leaders gather. It's where decisions are made. And so that's a, it's a really big, uh, big part. I, I want to make a joke like the Baptist world, that's like Nashville, but that's really not the same at all. But uh, um, this Jerusalem is an important, important part of the early church, right? So then we, we find out that people left Jerusalem because of persecution that broke out against the church. Uh, the stoning of Stephen, it says that after he died, that the, the believers were scattered throughout Judea, Samaria, and it says they went as far north as Phoenicia and Syria. Well, the ones that went to Syria planted the church in a city called Antioch. Now, Antioch is 350 miles roughly north of Jerusalem, and Antioch is a completely different place. It's a Gentile city. It's, it's, it's a really rough place. They had a... a, a, a a temple to the, the goddess Daphne. And they had temple prostitutes. The culture of, of Antioch is actually a really hedonistic, 
we would call it an immoral culture, which, which means that people that lived in the city were engaged in a lot of things that we would be kind of ashamed of in our culture today. And so for the church to take root in Antioch and for large numbers of people to come to faith there, God was moving in a powerful way. And the church was interacting with a bunch of people that did not have the Old Testament gospel, the Old Testament teachings of Moses. They didn't have the stories that all the disciples has had, had had about Moses and King David and all those Old Testament stories that we know. The people in Antioch didn't have any of that. It was a completely foreign culture to, to, to Judaism. And so when the gospel takes root there, it's a different kind of place and a very different feel than the church that's in Jerusalem. And so I want to set that stage because what we're going to find here is that the, the church undergoes some incredible change because of the gospel, and it starts with the people in the church. I want to tell you that the biggest change the gospel brings to the church starts with the individuals that live there. So my first point is the gospel transforms the individual. And we're going to look at two stories here. We're going to look at Barnabas and we're going to look at Paul. Okay, so the first one, Barnabas. Barnabas was a Jew from Jerusalem. He, uh, he sold some of his things. He gave it to the, the apostles there, and they had all things in common. We're going to look at that verse here in a little bit. But Barnabas was a really faithful guy. In fact, his name means son of encouragement. So the guy lives up to his name. He's a, he's a great encourager. But when this, this church started at Antioch, the leaders in Jerusalem said, somebody needs to go check it out, see what's going up there and all that, that, that faraway place, make sure that these people are following Jesus well. So Barnabas is kind of the guy to go check it out. They send him up there, and what he finds is that the church is really strong, and he starts preaching and caring for the church. It says a large number of people come to the faith. It's the same language that you find at the end of Acts chapter uh, 2, where it says that there were daily people being added to the faith. And so this idea that the church in Antioch is growing, and it's powerful, and Barnabas is there, and he says, I need help. So Barnabas goes, he'd heard of a guy named Saul, and, uh, and he goes all the way to his homeland, Tarsus, which is not too far from Antioch, and he looks for him. Now we're going to stop there, and I want to stop and give you a little bit of history on this guy, Saul. So Saul was the guy that was destroying the church in Jerusalem. He was the one that was holding the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. So the church in Antioch started because of the persecution that was being led by Paul. Think about this, the church in Antioch is planted because people were fleeing persecution and they were fleeing the persecution that was being led by this guy. Okay, so Saul obviously has this interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus, it changes everything for him. And it says that he, <clears throat> he writes later that he goes into Arabia for two years and that he's discipled by Jesus himself. What that looked like, we don't have any information. But he comes back and then they try to kill him in Damascus and they let him go. He sneaks out a window at night they take him to, he goes to Jerusalem, he meets with Peter for a few weeks, and then he starts freaking, preaching in Jerusalem, and the Jews in Jerusalem want to kill him. So they put him on a ship and send him to Tarsus, and that's where Scripture goes silent. We don't have any story in Scripture from what happens for the 10 years that Paul is in Tarsus. So I want to know, what happens to this guy? I don't know about you, but my curiosity gets piqued. What happens to Paul? How does he go away, a guy that's fleeing for his life, and come back as Paul the Apostle, right? A guy that literally changes the way the, the gospel is, is understood and moves from, from then on. And so I started reading, there's a really great book by John Pollock that was written in the 1970s called The Apostle Paul. And it gives a lot of church history and tradition on what happened <clears throat> in those 10 years. And let me just give you a real quick synopsis. In those 10 years, Paul probably went back to his house 
As a Pharisee, it's very likely that he was married, maybe even had children. He probably went to the synagogue, as was his custom, where he grew up, the same synagogue where he first learned about Moses and, and, uh, and David and all of the Old Testament stories. He probably went there and began to share with them the gospel, and they rejected the gospel. Paul writes in Corinthians that he had received the, the lashes, 39 minus 1, five different times in his life. And the only, we only have two of them in the book of Acts. So historians believe that it happened in that 10 years that he was whipped 39 times, three different times. And it was two different types of punishments. The first one was probably when he shared the gospel with the, the synagogue and they rejected it and they called him a heretic. And so he's punished for his heresy because he was preaching Jesus as the Messiah and they rejected that. And so they gave him the 39 lashes minus one, which is one step, 40 lashes was a death sentence. 39 means one step below death. And so they, they would take off his, his shirt and beat him, and the way that it was done was really brutal. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's very similar to what you might think of what happened to Jesus right before the cross. And so he received it the first time, but Paul didn't repent of his heresy because of the wounds that he, so he healed up, and then they gave him another chance. So this was a second step. This was pretty common. It's someone who was heretical, who had formerly been a leader. Remember, he was a teacher of the law. He was a Pharisee. They gave him another chance to, 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 to repent of his heresy. And again, he's stuck with Christ. And so this time the punishment is double the first one. So they, they gave him the 39 lashes, let him heal, and then gave him a second 39 lashes, which makes three times in this 10 years, probably within the first couple of years that he's beaten almost to death by the people that are his family. It's at the end of that, when he doesn't uh, repent again, that he probably is disinherited by his father. He loses everything that he would have inherited as a, as a son of a Jew, a prominent Jew in, in, in Tarsus. It's that point he probably formally was divorced by his wife and put away and disinherited by his own children. And so from that point on, Paul has nothing. He has no body. He's pretty much by himself. And so church history says that he starts traveling and he starts going to places outside of Tarsus and planting churches among the, the area we call Cilicia. And it's very likely that that's where he's starting to learn how this gospel can work in a, in a Gentile environment. But by the time that he's found by Barnabas, and it took some looking apparently, the way that Luke words this isn't that he went and got him, it's that he went and looked for him and then brought him back. And church history says that he found Paul in a cave and that Paul in the cave was lonely and depressed and isolated, a lot like the way you find David in the cave in the Old Testament. And when Barnabas invites him to come with him to Antioch, it's really a reinstatement. It's like, God still has a plan for you, Paul. Come with me. And so Paul goes to Antioch, and it's like God immediately births in him this incredible new ministry that is highly effective. Uh, early in Acts, you find Barnabas and Paul, and at the end of their first mission trip when they were on Cyprus, after that, it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul becomes the leader, and Barnabas allows it to happen. And I want you to see this. As we're talking about how the gospel changes the church, it starts with him changing individuals in the church. And it doesn't go from somebody getting to know Jesus, and now they're a little bit nicer people. People who know Jesus are transformed by the gospel. They become different people. It took Paul maybe 12 years from the time of his conversion to the time that he's ministering in Antioch, and God seems to give him this large public ministry. But in that time, God was transforming his very character, transforming his life, and transforming him into somebody that really, I don't know that the world has ever seen the like of since. When you think about how Paul suffered in his missionary journeys, and then you realize how much he suffered before they ever even started, you think, this guy, 
This guy was completely devoted to what he believed. And he knew beyond a shadow of doubt that this Jesus that he put his faith in was going to take care of him, even when it didn't feel like it or seem like it. And so the first thing I want you to see is this, is that this Jesus transforms us from who we were and makes us someone different. And I hope that you're looking for that in your life. I hope that you look back at what you were before Jesus and you can look at who you are today and think, man, if people knew me then, they wouldn't know me now. Anyone, I think, that loves Jesus and knows him personally can tell a story like that. Maybe not quite as powerful as Paul's, maybe not as, as thrilling and dramatic, but equally important. The next thing that you see in this story is that, that the, the gospel not only changed because the people in it and the transformation they received, but it also changed the way ministry was done. The gospel in Antioch changed the big trajectory of the entire church, even the one in Jerusalem. And what I do is I want to I give a little compare and contrast for a few minutes on what happened in Jerusalem and then what happened in Antioch, okay? So let's, let's jump over to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. It's really the birth of the church on Pentecost. Peter stands up and gives a powerful sermon. At the end of the sermon, 3,000 are baptized, a powerful day. And then you get these, these beautiful verses. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, there's a lot here uh, and this often is talked about as the formation of the early church. And it's a beautiful section. And you can find in here 10 things that every church should be act active on. And maybe one day we can do that lesson as well. But what I want you to see is who are the leaders? It gives us a, a, a real quick glimpse. The leaders are the apostles. Now let's think, what's unique about the apostles? Why, why do they stand out when you think about the leaders in Jerusalem? Well, they were eyewitnesses to the Christ, right? They had spent time with him. They had watched him walk on water and raise the dead and they had seen him crucified and they'd seen him after his crucifixion and the resurrection and they were certain that what they knew was true, right? They had this confidence that this Jesus who they worshiped was really God. It's an important thing. But think about the leaders in Antioch. None of the leaders were what? Disciples. None of them had walked with Jesus. Paul had, but he'd done it in a way that was very different than the disciples in Jerusalem, right? He'd interacted with Christ in a, in a different sort of way. Now, just go with me here for a minute. Who would you put more confidence in? The leaders in Jerusalem or the leaders in Antioch? Raise your hand if you'd say Jerusalem. Okay, raise your hand if you say Antioch. Some of you are like, this is a trick question. I'm not going to answer at all. This is a really important thing because one of the, the, the pieces that we come away with is that ministry in Jerusalem was led and cared for by the superstars. The ones that had been with Jesus, the ones that had so much to offer, the ones that had incredible faith. But when you get to Antioch, the church is being led by people that you've never heard of. Paul was a guy hiding in a cave. Barnabas was a guy that had sold some property and, and was sent by the Jerusalem church. If we, we look here in a few minutes, we'll look at chapter 13. And we find out there's another guy named Simeon who's an African. We have another guy named Menaeus who was a, a relative of, of Herod. And another guy named Lucius of, 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 um, 
Cyrene, I, I, I got it wrong. Uh, we'll look at it in a minute. I'll tell you the truth, okay? These five guys are guys you don't know anything about. And how is it that a church in a faraway place that has a whole bunch of Gentile pagans can give leadership to the church in Jerusalem? Does that make any sense? And yet it happens. Look, God does something really unique. In all of our stories here about what happens in Jerusalem, they sold, they gave, they all took care of each other, but nowhere do we see them taking care of anyone outside of Jerusalem. Do you notice that? The mission of the church in Jerusalem pretty much stays there. The only people that leave are the ones who are fleeing for their life. And yet in Antioch, you see God doing something new. He's changing the ministry model. I want to tell you the gospel changes the model. The gospel changes our methods. The message stays the same, but the model and the method can change. And so in Antioch, God births something new. We'll go back to where we started, uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 27. So they were called Christians at Antioch. And then it says, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus. He stood up and through the spirit predicted there would be a severe famine that would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, this is in Antioch, as each were able, decided to provide help for brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. All right, so get the picture here. We've got a group of, of, of believers in a, in a very hostile environment, Antioch. They hear from a prophet that there's going to be a famine. And what they, what they think is we need to raise money and grain, not for themselves. Notice what they say, for the brothers and sisters in Judea. So they're already thinking that their responsibility goes far beyond caring for their own community. They want to do more. They want to care for the community in Jerusalem. And so they raise money and grain, probably for an extended season of time, maybe as much as a, as a year. And then Paul and Barnabas take this train of, of money and food with them to, to Judea, and they help the church in Jerusalem. Now, this is, this is shocking. When Paul and Barnabas get to Jerusalem with the food, of course, the believers are so thankful. They're so happy because they needed the food. The, the, the famine of that day is actually recorded by Josephus and several other historians from the first century. So it really was a significant event. And when, when Paul and Barnabas get there, they have some other questions. You see, there's this problem happening in, in, in Antioch, and it's all these Gentiles are coming to faith, and now some people in Jerusalem are going there. And one of the things that happened when the prophet got there and shares his prophecy is that some of the Jews there said, these guys are not acting right. These Gentiles need to become Jews before they can be Christians. They have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. And so one of the things while Paul and Barnabas are there with the leaders in Jerusalem, they sit down probably with Peter and John and James. They said, this is a big deal. We need to talk about this. And in the end, there's two, two items. One is Paul saying that they don't respect me because I'm not one of you. I'm not a disciple that walked with Jesus. But I've been trained by Jesus. I have this authority of Jesus. And I need you to basically empower me so that my apostleship can be recognized. And they say, hey, we, this, is, this is amazing. That little tiny thing is a big deal. What would it take for you, David, to go up and say, guys, I need to be counted one of your equals, Peter, John, James. And somehow these guys see the spirit of God so active in Paul that they give him the strength and the, the, they give him the name and the title of apostle so that when he goes, he can go with their blessing and says, I'm one of the apostles. How amazing and, and in many ways ridiculous. Remember, this guy was trying to persecute Christians before. Now he's given the same title of apostle as these other guys. 
He also, they say, listen, we, we're not sure about this whole thing with the Gentiles, but we can see that God's moving and we're gonna give you our blessing to go and plant churches among those Gentiles. And so Paul goes back and this becomes a bigger argument. Later on in Acts, it becomes worthy of a giant conversation in Jerusalem where they make a big decision. But I want you to see that the work that was happening in Antioch is transforming the entire church, even the church in Jerusalem. How, how remarkable is that? How remarkable in a, in a day and age like ours where we look for hierarchy and we look for who's in charge, we look for the leaders, and what we see is this flattening of leadership in the gospel. And what I mean by that is every follower of Jesus has responsibility to talk to Jesus and hear from Jesus and act on it. And so what you hear from God is not moderated by me or Pastor Julio or by anyone else. It's moderated by the Spirit of God working inside of you. And so a guy like Barnabas and a guy like Paul who did not walk with Christ physically can give leadership to the entire church because the Holy Spirit is moving in them and walking in them. This is one of the reasons we tell you we need every one of you to act in the way that God has called you to act. That's how the church flourishes. It's when each of us hears the responsibility and knows that it's the voice of God leading us and we say, I need your help. David, I can't do this by myself. How do we get people to help me? How do I get people, Alan, to come alongside and let's do this thing together? That's what the church is. It's a bunch of people who are seeking God individually and pouring themselves into what he's calling them to and everyone loving each other and working together to see those things accomplished. It's not Peter standing at the top saying, listen, God called me to do this and I need you and you and you to go do it for me. No, he's saying, I need to hear from you what God's calling you to do and let's do it together. Paul was the master of taking people with him. As we get to know and, and, and as we go through the book of Acts, you can hear so many ways that Paul encouraged. He was never alone. He always had people with him. So two things here. The, the gospel transforms the church by changing the people in the church, transforming individuals. The gospel transforms the church by changing and adapting the models to the culture that it's going to engage and the culture that it's in, in, embedded in. Lastly, the gospel changes the very mission of the church. If we were to nail down that Acts 2 verses, we might come away thinking that the mission of the church is to raise money and take care of the hurting, the broken, the needy right around us. That's the mission of the church. And that would be a good mission, right? Everyone would feel really happy about that. But the thing is, is that would end whenever our children decided not to follow it anymore. And the kingdom goes beyond that. He's looking out, outside of the church at the lost, the people that we engage every day, our friends, families, coworkers, classmates, they care. God cares about them. They're supposed to matter to us because they're made in God's image. And he call, he's calling them and beckoning them to himself. And he's using us to make that gospel known to them. But it goes beyond our community. And if we didn't have a vision to go somewhere where the, the gospel's never been, it would never go there. If we didn't make extreme effort, and if you look at Paul's life, I would call it extreme effort, to go to places like Galatia, to go to places like Antioch, to go to places later on like Ephesus and eventually Corinth and, 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 and all these places where Paul went, if he didn't go through the extreme effort of going to do it, the gospel wouldn't have gone there. The gospel changes the mission of the church. Yes, we're supposed to care for each other, love one another. There's a whole bunch of love one under the scriptures. We're supposed to take care of one another, have all things in common and have none without need is the, the big giant standard given to us in Acts chapter two, but it goes beyond that. We also have to engage the hurting, the bro broken, the lost and the needy and those who are far from, from us. 
And we see that example borne out by the church in Antioch. We don't see at any point the Jerusalem church laying hands on anyone to send them out. We see people leave Jerusalem because they were afraid for their lives, but we see people leaving Antioch because the Holy Spirit called them to go. Now listen, it's not just the people that are sitting in the back pews and like, well, we could lose a few of these. We're going to send them. No, no, they send out their best. Look at this. Look at Acts chapter 13, uh, one, one through three. It says, now the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, we've already talked about him. Simon called Niger. He's from Africa. Listen, this Simon guy is really interesting. Church history records that he's probably the son of Rufus. Does anyone here know who Rufus is? I love that not one person raised their hand. Okay, Rufus is very likely the man that carried the cross for Jesus when he couldn't carry it anymore. And Rufus's mother becomes like a mother to Paul, and they write about it because she is involved in the church in Rome. Anyway, it's cool to see there might be all these connections that are just not clear in, this, in the story, right? So Simon, called Niger, Lucius the Cyrene, Menaean, this is a relative of Herod, and Saul. These are the five guys. You don't know anything about them except for Paul and Barnabas. And these are the guys that God calls. Listen to this in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is the birth of what we would call the mission movement. Right here. A church led by five different guys from five different countries, probably have five different languages among them. These guys, they're, 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 they're uh, ethnically diverse. They're linguistically diverse. They're very different kind of people. They're probably uh, different class structures. Menaean is probably wealthy. The other guys here, we have no idea what their, their, their financial status is like. But all this to say, these five guys are leading the church, and God calls them and reminds them of this Great Commission. You know, the Great Commission before was focused on Judea and Samaria. But it's here where it becomes to see that this idea to make make disciples of all nations. This is where it gets that national de definition. This is where it goes from, from nations like Samaria and Israel to now nations that include the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. So listen to this church. It's unbelievable. In this little couple of verses that, that, that Barnabas goes and finds Saul and they start training the church in Antioch, this church changes the church. Everything that was the church in Jerusalem is redefined by the church in Antioch. And really so much of what we call Christianity today is defined by the church in Antioch and not by the church in Jerusalem. They were meeting in homes and, and all over the place. There was no temple in Antioch. It wasn't until the last thousand years that, church, that Christians decided to start building temples again and we start putting all this money into these big places of worship. They didn't exist for a long time in Christianity. Because the model was, was stay slim and, and stay, stay light where you can move quickly and change people and, and, and challenge and send leaders. And that needs to be something that we consider now as we, can, as we know God is calling us this day and age. So I'll, I'll stop. I'm almost done. I'm getting all wound up and I'm ready to really get going. <laughs> Go, she says. <sighs> the world that we live in is a lot like the church in Antioch. The culture is a mess. And we try to fight it. We want to fight it so bad. We want to try to turn our whole country and nation into a Christian country like it used to be. But guys, this is not a Christian country. All you have is Christian people and Christian churches that love him and love each other. And the best we can do is give the gospel to our nation, to our area, to our city, to our state. 
all we can do is, is love them the way God loves them and try to call them through the gospel, the good news, the kingdom of God is here. Come and find Christ, find hope, find life. But we can't blame them because they're not believers. You wonder why it's such a mess out there? It's because they're far from God. And what do you expect when people are far from God? Don't be surprised when our culture is going sideways. It's far from Jesus today. And it can get a lot worse. If you want to read how it can get worse, do some history. Read about what Antioch was like in the first century. Read about what Corinth and Ephesus was like in the first century. You think our moral problems in the U.S. are a big deal? Read about the moral problems that Paul was facing when he planted churches in these places. Guys, the gospel is enough. It's enough to transform you. It's enough to transform the models that we hold on to so tightly. And it's enough to change the mission, to keep us focused on disciple-making, the people that we see every day and the people who are far from us. But it's his mission and we're invited to be a part of it. So as we close, I encourage you today, if you feel like you're far from God, if you've been like Paul was before he met Jesus, doing everything you can to do things right and earn your way to Jesus and it hasn't worked, that's okay. Surrender today. Ask him to be your king. Ask him to be the Lord of your life. If maybe you've been caught in religion, you've been doing this Baptist thing for a long time, but your heart is cold and you can feel it, you can see it. Maybe you're so protective of, a, of old methods that you don't want anything to change. Repent and let the Holy Spirit move inside you and give us new life and new breath and new hope. And if you're tired of hearing about all these places, all these other places that need the gospel, let God change your heart because the gospel's here. The gospel is with you wherever you go. People interact with you, and by interacting with you, they interact with Jesus. But there are places in this world that they, people can be born and live their whole life and die and never know anyone that knows Jesus. Pray that God would break through those barriers, that every person on this planet would have access to the gospel. This gospel that has transformed us, transformed our heritage, transformed our culture, and continues to transform our mission today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we know, God, that we are broken. We know that we are weak. God, we know that we are not enough, but we know that you are enough. God, we know that your gospel says that you're near to us, that you're close, and that, God, you're with us. You say you'll never leave us or forsake us to the very end of the age, and, God, we need you. God, change us to become more like you. Change us to, to pour our hearts and lives into you. God, just give us the strength and courage to chase you with everything that we are. God, use us for your kingdom and your glory. If there's those of you today that have never asked Jesus to be the king of your life and you want to know more about that, man, talk to us. Come and find me after the service. Come and find Pastor David or ask the person next to you how to follow Jesus. Man, we can't wait to tell you. If there's any way that we can help you grow closer to God, please come and talk to us. We love you. Will you stand up and let's worship God together.